0: Welcome to STEAM Powered where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Danny Barrington. Danny is a water, sanitation and health specialist with a focus on toileting behaviours, menstrual health and hygiene, incontinence and water, especially in low middle income countries. She's also a co-founder of the Water Sanitation and Hygiene or WASH Failures Initiative, Encouraging wash professionals to be more open and honest about when things don't work out in this sector. Join us as we talk about water and sanitation systems, wash failures, and pantomime. Welcome to Steam Powered Danny. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's really great to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. That's fantastic. So yeah how did you get into environmental chemistry and environmental systems engineering that's a interesting combination there
1: yeah so I actually grew up in Rockingham in Western Australia um which if you have a google it is a beachside city slash town um so I spent a lot of time out in the ocean and um you know, like literally swimming with sea lions and dolphins (laughs) and stuff. Like (laughs) like I'm making it up. Yeah. And, and, uh, and going on holidays up to like Ningaloo reef. We have a reef over on the Western side of Australia uh, as well. That's not as well known as the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and so I was really keen from early on to, to become an environmental scientist and really got into things like, um, volunteering at the local environment center, um, volunteering in terms of counting seagrass, (laughs) it doesn't (laughs) sound that exciting, but really important part of the ecosystem down in, in Rockingham, um, in terms of ecosystem health and stuff. So when I heard about environmental systems engineering, um, at UWA, I was super keen to get into that and, and really, um, my activist side of, you know, we need to work towards, um, looking after the environment that we've got before we screw it up too much. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And so, and I really liked chemistry as well. So I thought I'd do the double degree, um, with the chemistry, environmental chemistry side of things as well as engineering. Nice. Yeah.
0: That's very cool. So like why specifically environmental systems? Cause a lot of people just go into environmental science or they go into other areas, but what about the systems made it, uh, special for you?
1: Yeah. So I don't think at the time I understood what environmental systems engineering really meant. Um, until I was studying the degree and probably even in, until I was doing my PhD in it and actually thinking about the fact that um, everything that happens in the world is all about context and the entire system that it works within and so for me I started out saying I want to do environmental stuff I want to look after um, the natural world kind of thing and then because we were working on systems throughout my degree i started getting more and more interested in the social side of things and thinking about the fact that if we're engineers we the whole point of having engineers engineer things is eventually for people or the environment like we're actually trying to achieve something and maybe that's not immediately obvious all of the time um you know if if you're designing a piece for a mine site uh you might not see directly how it then impacts on people but it is actually the reason that we're doing the mining in the first place is to, <laughs> to serve people. Right. Um, yeah. So as I got more into it and I started doing more, what we would call in, in, in the UK, for example, they talk about it more as public health engineering. So doing a lot more around water treatment, drinking water, wastewater, um, uh, how we can preserve things like the riparian strips along, uh, rivers and that kind of thing in terms of both, Uh, reducing the human impacts, but also um, environmental impacts and also making things like just generally better for humans and the environment as well. Um, I got really interested in the fact that we need to look at the social, the environmental, the political, the business side of things. Um, And so that's how I think that's what I think is really cool about the environmental systems engineering at UWA was that we were looking at that whole system, um, and how everything plays a different role. I mean, it's really complicated. (laughs) Of (laughs) Of course you want to try and do when you're trying to do your undergraduate assignments. you're like, Oh my God, everything influenced everything and nothing happens in a black box. Um, but if you actually want to try and achieve something in the world, you've kind of got to be seated in reality. So yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah definitely and yeah because it touches on all the systems and there's so many moving parts like you can get overwhelmed by like well where do i start you know what part do i pick at first yeah so when you were uh, doing your research and getting to your phd how did you decide on which one of these particular moving parts was going to be a space that you felt that you could make an impact
1: throughout my undergrad as I got more and more into the social side of things and actually just to to put this in not in perspective but I uh was bullied a lot in in high school I um I didn't really like people very much because of that you know I had my friends and everything but I was much more like I'm gonna go out and save the world which I would not say now at all Um, (laughs) but in terms of like I'm gonna you know save the turtles and the dolphins and that kind of thing Uh, And I think once I was at uni and I really found my own tribe and realized that there are really cool people in the world and it's actually okay to be smart um, and overweight and have a lisp and all these things that I got a lot of rubbish about uh, throughout school years, um, I started caring more about the people side of the environmental systems engineering as well. And I got really interested in the kind of work that like UNICEF does. Um... In terms of ensuring that there's clean drinking water for people as well as making sure that we're not ruining the environment uh, so i you know even but towards the end of my degree i wasn't set on what i wanted to do as an engineer and i i went for a few job interviews i had a job lined up as an engineering consultant um like for one of the big consulting firms um and you know my my honours supervisor said do you you, know, you should do a phd like and I think I said to him, why, why should I do a PhD? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, because, and he's like, because then nobody owns my ass. And he's like, I get to, you know, I get to say what I mean and work on what I need to work on. And I don't have to tow the company line in terms of actually like intellectually. And like, I remember him distinctly saying that to me. Um, he is a professor at uh, UWA still. He's very cool. Um, and... He, the project that I've been doing my honours on was looking at um, blue-green algal blooms, so cyanobacterial blooms, in waste stabilisation ponds, so wastewater treatment plants in rural areas of Western Australia. And what happens is that these algae, um, you, you often hear about them being in rivers and things. Um, they often produce toxins, which particularly the ones that I was interested in were producing um, hepatotoxins, so liver toxins and things, oh. and In rural areas of Western Australia, the water that is treated in these um, waste stabilization ponds is often used for irrigating public land and school ovals and that kind of thing. So I got really interested in how do we uh, reduce the loads of the algae and the toxins so that the water is treated better, but also making sure that it doesn't then flow on and we've got kids getting sick at schools because of that as well. And I was doing mostly, I was doing, using real life samples from ponds, but doing lab work in my honours. And then opportunity came up, essentially, um, my supervisor got some funding that would allow me to do it as a PhD project, um, from there. And so essentially I went into doing the PhD. I quit my consulting job before I started. It was very scary. (laughs) And, you know, my family are all like, oh, are you sure? (laughs) because <laughs> because also growing up in Western Australia and my dad's like, oil and gas, oil and gas. And I was like, no, I am it's going to be in oil and gas. Like, um, <laughs> it's fine. And don't contrary worry about to me. Kind of where you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I did t- 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 the PhD and I mean, the, the plan was I wanted to work more in the international development side of things. I started out being like, I'm in wastewater now, but I'm going to move into drinking water because that's, you know, so much more important. Um, and then (laughs) nowadays I'm much more like sanitation, wastewater shit, that's much more interesting than drinking water. (laughs) Um, not that we don't need clean drinking water, but I mean, a lot of the reason that drinking water gets contaminated is because we don't properly treat all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also it's just much more interesting and, and, um, fun to talk about with people. (laughs) Yeah. Talking about poo really gets people going, uh, yeah. And while I was doing my PhD, I started doing a lot of volunteer work with Engineers Without Borders. Um, So during my PhD, I was uh, at some point the UWA president and then the West Australian state president with them. Um, I mean, most of what I was doing there was around helping to rally together like people who already were graduate engineers who were working on projects and doing more of the bringing the committee together and getting people to learn more about international development.
0: But it meant yeah. that even
1: myself, I got to do a lot more training in what is international development all about, um, how does capacity building work. Um, I learned a lot more about um, various theories and co- colonisation and a very colonial way of thinking <laughs> that might have been ingrained in doing an engineering degree. Um, and then That sounds at, like an
0: interesting topic alone.
1: <laughs> yes. So when I was doing my PhD, I got involved with starting up a unit called Engineering and Social Justice. Um and part of that unit was, um, so it was an undergraduate unit and the undergraduate students got to do as part of it a volunteer placement with Engineers Without Borders. So my kind of contribution to the module was that I organised that placement for the students. So they would go and do high school outreach to teach high school kids about international development and engineering or something called PCs for Refugees where it was helping train local um refugees who'd recently moved over in basic computer skills, that kind of thing. But it also meant that I got to sit in on the unit, um, and learn a lot more about all these different theories of development and science and technology studies, and what is ecofeminism and neocolonialism <laughs> and all this kind of stuff that I had no wow. exposure to before, um, which really got me interested more and more in the, the social science the people side, side of, engineering. of the
0: Yeah, that's cool. So what is Engineers Without Borders?
1: Uh, so Engineers at Borders is an organisation, it's uh, it's independent in each country. Um, in Australia it began, I want to say 2003, I think we had the 10 year anniversary, yeah. Um, so Engineers at Borders in Australia, it, it does a few different things, you know, there is advocacy and such, but also it, it, really aims to kind of provide technical assistance and even more so more about capacity building, um, for engineering projects in low and middle income countries. Um, but also in, uh, remote indigenous communities, for example, rural communities in Australia, I guess it used to be, cause it's changed a lot over the past 18 years, used to be kind of like engineers would go and offer their assistance. And then it was more about, um, having, you know, Australian engineers actually work with local engineers to train people up in how to do various things. So for example, um, EWB Australia has worked a lot in Cambodia over the years where, um, you know, and it was only through EWB that I personally learned about, um, the Khmer Rouge and everything that happened in Cambodia. Um, never learned about that in school. Um, but, but part of that is that, um, when they were, you know, killing a lot of people in that genocide, um, they killed off a whole generation of engineers and people with degrees and people with these, these professional, um, backgrounds. Skill set, Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of what EWB has had done over the few years, particularly when I was very involved with them, um, was actually helping to capacity, build the engineering training sector in Cambodia so that they could produce more engineers because they'd lost a whole generation, um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, they also do lots of educational stuff. They have most universities in Australia nowadays have um, in their engineering undergraduate course, have some contact with EWB, whether it be running um, a competition. Um, They run often with first years where it's like a design challenge or have um, the option of final year projects where students work um, directly with EWB and with EWB staff overseas um, on doing a real life project that, that we need to know the answers to and not just something that got made up so that someone could get their degree.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's very cool. Uh, yeah. It's such a great initiative to be able to have and just get people a lot more aware about things outside their current sphere of influence. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you got into wanting to understand more about, you know, international development. Yep. So how did that, you know, go from there?
1: Uh, so I was actually really it was really fortuitous. The year that I was finishing my PhD, um, a placement came up with EWB based in Nepal. And um, what they specifically wanted was someone to work on water safety plans, which is essentially risk assessments of water supply and sanitation systems so that people can identify where are the critical points of failure so that we can make sure that we are preventing the failure and we've got as many things in place as possible to make sure that water quality when it gets to the consumer is actually decent so before that so you know 20 odd years ago um it was all about once water had left a water treatment plant it would be tested and then you'd find out that it was full of some bacteria and (laughs) oh crap it's already gone through everyone's pipes um And so this is something that was developed in the 90s. Uh, the Water Corporation in Western Australia was actually like at the forefront of this um, in, in terms of um, this uh, preventative approach to, to water quality. And I had, as part of my PhD, been looking at how you could apply it in terms of uh, wastewater treatment um, and looking at the uh, the hazards arising from the cyanobacteria that I talked about going into the... Yeah. Um, you know, playgrounds and that kind of thing. Uh, and the placement that came up in Nepal was about working with communities to develop their own water safety plans um, for systems that they ran themselves. So the systems were being built by a non-governmental organization called Nepal Water for Health, but they would then be run by communities. Um, so it just was one of those things where, um, you know. Last um, point up- of failure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and no one at that point, um, no one had really been looking at water safety plans as something that, you know, communities and non-engineers could actually be involved in both designing and implementing and, you know, keeping going. Yeah. It was yeah. very much like, you know, we'd have a water safety plan for a, uh, water treatment plant in Perth and it would be a huge document that would sit on a shelf for the engineers and know about it. And that was, <laughs> that's it. That was it. Um Yep. And obviously that's not how the the world works generally if you're not an engineer and it's, you know, a water supply (laughs) in your own house. Uh, So I was really lucky. So I was really well set up to actually apply for that. Um, So I applied for that placement. It was 10 months in Nepal working as a wash engineer. um, And I got that position and quite quickly realised that it was a lot more about the community development and participatory side of working with people Understanding how people interpret the water systems, understanding people's priorities around water and sanitation, um, and then their daily priorities that you can make all the lists in the world, but if no one's going to look at them, that doesn't help <laughs> you manage your system, that kind of thing. Um, yep. And yet, so I got into you know the kind of stuff that we were doing was we were piloting how to develop these kind of water safety plans with sanitation as well, which it wasn't normally in them at the time. Um, with a few different communities and then trying to, from there, working out what did and didn't work and trialling it um, so that we could then roll it out across all of Nepal Water for Health programs in Nepal so that as they had the technical side of people who were, they'd have the technical side that um, developed the water supply systems and sanitation, which was mostly built by local people but trained by the NGO. Um, you'd have the social um, community health workers that were being trained in terms of the behaviorist side of things and then also then kind of looking at how you bring that together in terms of prevention and making sure that your system continues working and the way that people are behaving isn't impacting poorly on, on what you're trying to achieve technically yeah yeah so and that was very much the, the you know the kind of activities we developed was how do you Um, use different kinds of games and different types of engagement with people to identify what are all the risks in the system, as opposed to what you might just do as an engineer and sit down and look at a diagram and lecture at them. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Um, So that's when I got really keen on the, um, the community side of things and really, I think really recognized how important it was. I was like, well, I have an engineering PhD. Um, I don't think that I'm the most amazing engineer in the world. I can see that there are failings in terms of engineering, that it's not just the engineering that we need, and that maybe for me, the fact that I love working with people, and when I was an undergrad, I was one of the founders of the UWA Pantomime Society, so <laughs> which essentially meant that I was used to getting up on stage and making a fool of myself, and I have a very self-deprecating sense of humour, and yeah. kind of just realising that that was part of my Professional skill set, not just something (laughs) I like doing for fun. And that I, you know, what I could actually contribute more was I understand the engineering, but I'm also really like working with people. And how can I, you know, I'm never going to be the person who designs the world class water filter, but maybe I can help inform that to be a water filter that is actually going to be used by communities. Um, Yeah. So kind of came, kind of found my little niche there in terms of the people and the engineering. Uh, coming together in the Venn diagram (laughs) (laughs)
0: nice yeah so 10 months in Nepal to do all that that seems like a lot to do in 10 months
1: I mean there had so there had been uh volunteers there I think for five months had been someone and then another five months had been someone else so they had trialed um they started trying to work out how to do these develop these water safety plans in two sets of communities Uh, and when i was there it was looking at what had and hadn't worked in those ones Um, and then also looking at another three communities on top of that i think and so really trying to bring together what had been learned over the past year um to to uh you know create this overarching plan of attack so you know the
0: kind of systems that we have in place you know in I guess, major cities and urban environments, it's so different. And we take a lot of it for granted, obviously, really? because, you know, it's all up to the engineers, they sort it out, we deal with the, you know, whatever the output is, Yeah. but when you're actually taking a lot of these you know, principles that you understand from the urban environments, how, how can you translate that into these smaller communities where you don't have that kind of infrastructure? You don't have that kind of, um, I guess, backing or separation between who's in charge and who has to take care of things?
1: I think it it really depends on different communities and also what people have been exposed to. So in Nepal, I was working mostly with very remote communities, like up in the foothills of the Himalayas and things. Um, After I came back from Nepal, my work for about three and a half years was in the South Pacific. Um, Specifically, I worked in Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. And I worked with communities and stakeholders who were in like peri-urban and urban areas. And in those cases, for one thing, you had to really be able to work across the fact that communities had often um, some sort of connection with the water utilities grid. Um, but also that generally wasn't enough for everybody there was also some self-sufficient component um, which might have been through on selling water to your neighbors or collecting rainwater or working for the local water company and they were letting you take water home um, and also that people were um, more exposed to things like flush toilets so where in a lot of uh, rural areas, people have never really come across a flush toilet, um, and might have never really had issues in terms of if you're going out openly defecating in the bush, if you've got enough land around you, it might not be a big issue. Yeah. The communities where, when you're working with communities who are closer to cities, they are, there's more of an awareness and there's kind of more of that, I don't want to be seen going to the toilet and there's not a lot of places to go and hide and go to the toilet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but also that drive for, well, everyone else in the city has flush toilets. So that's what we should have as a minimum. Yeah. Which can also be very tricky because, you know, you've not got proper running water in your community, for example. Um, so, (sighs) I guess it it, it, it just depends on, on every context is different and really yeah. understanding what it is that people are aspiring to and what are their priorities and what have they seen. And, and that can be really tricky because, you know, we worked with communities who they really wanted flush toilets and some of them had built flush toilets, but the area couldn't actually be sewered. And the area often, you know, often these informal settlements where I've worked have been on floodplains anyway, and that's why there's... Not be in any building there to begin with or they're yes. technically below the waterline um so people would have flush toilets which then just flush onto the ground outside the house yeah which is then where the kids play and such so, so really all these incomplete
0: systems yeah
1: yeah and so trying to work with people of like okay well they're not going to sewer the area like we've got the water utility in and they've said look this is never going to happen technically it's not feasible like the the water table's so high all this everything would just shift um so trying to work with community in terms of like what is your um you know what is your baseline standard of like if you can't have a sewer system what can we get to what point can we get to that you're happy with that also reduces Incidences of of disease, or we we think will to some extent. I mean, obviously that's very difficult to to measure cause and effect (laughs) um, with sanitation stuff. And there's been big trials that have not quite managed yet because (laughs) uh, there's so many different things that factors at play. Yeah, Um, but doing things like one of the communities we worked with, they were um, digging drainage ditches and building footpaths so at least that the kids didn't have to walk through the wastewater on their way to school and that kind of thing. So trying to, to figure out in each context, okay, what what can be done to improve the situation that you guys actually are interested in and I'm not just coming as an engineer and telling you what you need to do. Um, yes. But also saying, as an engineer, I can tell you they're not gonna be able to sewer that area. Like Technically it, it can't happen. Um, so very much like give and take in terms of I will never understand what it's like to live in a flood-prone informal settlement in Fiji but I can have some you know but there are some things that having done a PhD in engineering that I can contribute in terms of knowledge so very much trying to build those partnerships between the different stakeholders who are from the community um, and also working within their own power structures so they might have a chief or a wash committee But also working with the local government and the local NGOs and things and everyone kind of trying to bring to the table what their skill sets are to achieve something so that we can at least incrementally move the needle forward (laughs) um, in terms of people's priorities.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you, you really need such a wide range of people with a huge range of experiences to be able to, you know, contribute valuably to these things, especially because as you said, or every context is different with so many different factors based on the environment, based on the society.
1: And land tenure is a big thing as well. Um, yeah. So working in, in this these situations where most people don't have uh, a legal right to the land that they're on um, and so don't know whether they're going to get kicked off immediately or whether, you know, you talk to the government officials and, it'll be the official line is in three years they'll be moved on but actually in reality it's probably that it'll never happen or then yeah. other places in the world um where uh you know overnight the government will come in and just bulldoze a whole community and they're not it's not there anymore um yeah. so you know and that's also contributes to whether people want to invest in better water and sanitation because they're like i'm not going to spend exactly. money on a toilet when i might not if i'm going to get kicked off week.
0: tomorrow yeah
1: and you've got to have that, like you've got to consider that because nothing happens in a vacuum. Um, so, you know, yeah. that's when we had to bring in like UN Habitat and um, Housing Assistant Relief Trust and that so that we could, in these projects, actually understand what is the real situation of, of what's going to happen. What is
0: the actual risk of the timeline?
1: Yeah. And, and, and often it's not even about what I intellectually understand as the risk of what might be written on paper, it's much more important <laughs> yeah, exactly. what the people who live in the community believe is about to happen. Because if yeah. they think they're about to get kicked off, even they're if they're not I show going them... to want to invest, yeah, yeah, I know a whole other thing that you would think about to begin with when you're Goodness. like, "I'm an engineer, we can build toilets." <laughs> yeah.
0: We'll just build it; it'll be fine. It's like, oh, right, there are all these other yeah. issues involved. Great, fantastic,
1: yeah. and especially <laughs> where people, if you think about like the rest of us don't make rational decisions on a daily basis of things that are good for us. Right. But there's some, there's kind of this like assumption that if you're, um, it's like when there's this assumption that if you're living in poverty in Australia, it's your own fault. Or like if you go and have avocado on toast, well then you've made a bad life decision and you're never going to you know, be able to afford a house. Um, but we all make different decisions based on various things that are happening at the time. And yeah, we, we can't judge one another on these things. <laughs>
0: no and it's also the like there's what there's a reality of what is actually happening and then on top of that the perception of the people of what is happening and also the perception of you know what their future or what their potential options and outcomes are going to be like all of Mm. this factors into the way that people make choices
1: and how they work with uh, academics and practitioners and things as well like everyone has their reasons for getting involved. And so you also have to recognize when people are talking to you that there's a very good chance that they can be bullshitting you because they're telling you <laughs> telling you what they think you want to hear or they're telling you something that they're hoping will get them something that they want. Um, yeah. I think it's everyone has thing. their own agendas. <laughs> yeah. And, and also I don't think that that is a bad thing. I think we have to remember when we work with communities anywhere in the world that everyone is, is like basically the same. We're all people. And... We're all able to manipulate situations to what we want. And I think it's disrespectful to assume that people won't do that just because <laughs> they are poor and, or whatever. you like, just because you don't have proper sanitation or you're living in a, in a slum settlement, why should I not expect you to be just as invested in getting the best outcome for your family that you think you can get from interacting with this NGO rather than perhaps exactly. doing exactly what the NGO wants you to do? you know, yeah, like, like let's respect people for being, <laughs> uh, having agency. <laughs> exactly.
0: And everyone has their own priorities and it's you know, part of it is going to be, you know, your base survival stuff, but there's also wanting to advance and improve. And for that, everyone has different ways of gauging what that is for themselves and for their community.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes communities are like, well, we'd rather spend our money on a new church and I'm like, You know, like I can respectfully disagree, (laughs) but I don't live there and that's your decision. And you know, it might be like disappointing to me on a professional level, but
0: um, yeah. That is the choice that
1: they have made and that is
0: a legitimate choice for them.
1: Yeah. Like we all do, like we all spend money on things that we probably shouldn't like. (laughs) Avocado (laughs) on toast. I actually don't even like avocado, but yeah. Yeah.
0: But, you know, you, you you still have to work with that. So, yes, I'm, I'm sure you want to build that church, but let's see what solution we can come up with with what we've got remaining to help yeah. with this other thing. Find a compromise that will achieve both ends.
1: Yeah, and it's that kind of balancing out the educational side of things with the, like, you know, not forcing people to do things, but making sure people are informed of all the facts. And yeah. understanding that, um, it's okay if you, if that's what you decide to do, here are some facts on children getting sick and the fact that how many children die of diarrheal diseases every day because of unclean drinking water and things. So, yeah, you know, not expecting that people will always work off of the facts. Cause like, you know, I know that I shouldn't eat McDonald's, but occasionally like that's, I've got to eat the McDonald's <laughs> <Like> I, <laughs> and my body's like, yeah, it's, it's happening. Um, so yeah, recognising that just giving people information doesn't mean that they're going to act, but at least making sure that people yeah. have been informed about the, the situation, I think is, is, is important.
0: Yeah, like you, you can't oblige them to agree with what you're doing, but you can just, you know, let them know and help them out where you
1: can. Yeah, which and I think is cool. life in general.
0: <laughs> yes, generally yeah. just how everyone should do things. It's just yeah. a regular yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> So you'd mentioned, uh, that, you know, there are a lot of failures in WASH at the start of our conversation, or, well, and even a couple of days ago, thinking, well, you know, how can you have that many failures, you know, clearly talking to you now. And I was like, well, yes, that makes sense. You can see where you have multiple potential points of failure in such a massive system that you have to manage. And, you know, you've started an initiative called WASH Failures. So tell me about that.
1: I, Oh, I don't even actually know how I started getting interested in this, but really, uh, one thing is that Engineers Without Borders Canada. There was a video, a TED talk about ten years ago, um, and a guy was talking about how he, I think he'd been somewhere in, I want to say Africa, and had installed a um, a water tap and was all very proud of what he'd done as as being an you know expat gone over there and tried to save the world, and then kind of realized <laughs> afterwards that you know, the water tap didn't actually work or it wasn't used or something. I can't remember the exact story, but you can definitely find it on TED. It's a very very famous video kind of in our sector. And I just was getting more and more frustrated working in the sector and seeing that things weren't working and we weren't necessarily talking about them, we weren't necessarily learning from our mistakes. And everyone was just kept flogging a dead horse and being like, well, this is the um framework that we've all agreed is the one that's going to work so this is how we're going to implement the project and then we're going to do it and not being flexible enough to actually think oh it's not working right now let's change our approach (laughs) (laughs) just keep doing the same thing um and so i mean you have things like technical failures obviously but also you have failures where you know no one ever asked the community what they actually wanted um or just you know something's being implemented and clearly it's not working but no one ever stepped back and said let's let's change how we're doing it so a few years ago a couple of colleagues and i um we were kind of like we need to talk about this more there have been a few people who've tried to get the conversation going around failures there's been a couple of publications but People just aren't really engaging. People don't have time necessarily to go online and document everything that's gone wrong in their projects, or they may not want to do that for various reasons. Um, So we started running these game shows at international conferences called um, Blunders, Bloopers, and Foul Ups. Um, And it was a way of like kind of in a fun way, getting people to share failures that they'd seen in their work. Um, You know, we did things like, We'd have questions and, the, and the, the contestants had to decide which ones were the real failures and which were the fake ones. Or we'd have um, kind of like, have I got news for you? Or uh, Good News Week used to be on Australian TV. Yep. Like, here are four different pictures that describe a failure. Tell me what the failure was. <laughs> and it turns out that it's something like, um, you know, a, these excellent new sanitary pads were developed somewhere by one of the UN agencies. And it turns out that um, the women thought they were awesome as uh, fire starters, so they were definitely getting used, <laughs> but they weren't being used for, for menstrual health. Um, That's
0: awesome. All those things, <laughs>
1: yeah. Like there's so many different ones, um, and so we got people talking a lot more. And um, we kind of the first time we ran the game show. Uh, it was so well received and people were like, we need to have like a manifesto for this. We need to get people <laughs> talking more. And it has to be something that doesn't take a lot of effort to, to get people engaged in this conversation. It's not like you must write down your failures in this database. That no one's going to ever look at online. Um, and that's how we kind of came up with the Nakuru Accord because the first, that conference happened to be in Nakuru in Kenya. Um, and I think it's nine different principles that we, Collectively, there was about 80 of us in the room um, decided were principles that we felt were really important for us to live by as WASH professionals. And um, after that, we, we took away kind of that, the big list and then we put it up online as a survey and tried to get anyone else in the WASH sector who was interested to, um, to pitch in to make sure that the wording was simple enough and that kind of thing. Um, and then eventually on world toilet day, 2018, we released the accord as something that people could sign and say, as a wash professional, these are the principles I'm going to live by. I'm going to be flexible. I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to talk about when things go wrong and I'm going to talk about it in plain language and not just try and gloss over everything. (laughs) So we've had over 300 signatories for that. Um, but we also recognized early on that. Not the, the whole of the sector is not on Twitter, for example, and a lot of people don't get to go to international conferences and and, and play the, the games with us. Um, so a couple of years ago, we put in a proposal and we got some funding from the Royal Academy of Engineering in the UK um, yeah. to run a, a project where we talked to um, frontline wash workers. So people actually work directly with communities who actually implement programs in uh, south africa zimbabwe malawi and tanzania Um, and we are we've just been analyzing the results from that so we ended up interviewing 108 people about what they felt were the reasons for failure of their projects or projects that they'd seen what is the culture of failure like in their organization are they actually allowed to talk about it who talks about it and how can we change that culture of actually? To shift it that it's something that we can be more open and honest about so yeah. again recognizing that having a having the nakuru accord and something that people can sign might be uh you know in my community of practice might be something that is works really well and something that uh, people are keen on but we don't want to assume that that's the best for the for whole everybody sector. yeah yeah um so we're now uh starting to we're analyzing those results and finding out the different reasons why projects fell uh, or why the local practitioners think projects are failing. Big thing is lack of community engagement in projects. Um, but also like over promising donors because donors are expecting such high return for projects and um, yes. not being able to sustain projects beyond project cycles. So saying, well, you know, it worked at the end of the two years, the taps were all there or whatever but you know a couple there's of no years continued... later continued yeah yeah there's no maintenance and that kind of thing um so I guess the the big recommendations that have come are coming out of that so far is from the frontline WASH staff is we need to have more flexibility we need donors to be more open um to actually you know kind of expecting us to be sharing when things are going wrong but also allowing us some autonomy to shift things if they're not working yeah. um particularly where it's like you know it's a big multilateral donor and they've said well we want the project done in this way and yeah. the local staff realize that's not working yeah yeah and local staff often are like if we actually changed it in this particular way it could work locally Um, but don't often feel they're empowered enough to to be able to bring that up and think, oh, fine, we'll just keep doing what they've told us to do and it won't work, and then we'll kind of cover it up. Yeah. Um, And then also just more of a wanting some more local platforms for how you can actually, like, share with other people. So between organisations, there's a lot of... There's a lack of communication. There's a lot of replication and everyone's trying to fight for that same slice of pie in terms of money. Right. Um, Yeah. So I guess part of it is trying to, there was a recommendation that there's more forums where individuals from different organizations can talk more openly about what isn't, isn't working um, instead of keeping it a a secret kind of, and, and that kind of thing that's, that's happened a lot in the past.
0: So with the, uh, reluctance to talk about the failures, where does that stem from? Is it purely a cultural thing? Is it because they're used to working with these organizations and donors who don't want to talk about the failures? Like where, where does the need to close ranks come in?
1: I think a lot of it is to do with, um, wanting to save face around donors. Um, there are definitely some cultural aspects to it, which differ between different cultures. But I mean, a big thing is, um, you know, even I've had some donors recently be, say to me like, well, we tell them to share their failures. So, you know, they should just be sharing their failures. (laughs) You need to actually think about the behavioral science side of things of like, we need, we need to change the actual culture. It's more than just words. Um, so people still think oh yeah yeah they're telling us to share our failures mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we'll do that then we won't get funded <laughs> next time so kind of the putting the money where the mouth is in terms of yeah you know making sure that projects are able to be really honest as projects are progressing to learn from things that are going wrong and actually change course rather than going through the whole project or the program yeah. or whatever it is and then it not working at the end and just covering that up. Um, and I don't think we know yet how to create that culture. I think there's a lot of people who will say, yeah, uh, you know, I'm a good guy. I tell the people who I give money to that they should tell me about these things, but that, that doesn't necessarily change anything. We've got to actually figure out how to, to really shift it so that we can feel more comfortable talking about these things.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of expectation management down yes. and up to be able to, you know, know what, what the, consequences are when they do want to start to share these things. Like, will you withdraw funding for us if we talk to about, talk to you about these things or are we going to be able to actually move forward and say, well, this doesn't work, but we need to do it this way and then it will work and then you'll keep giving us money.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And there's always this thing about, we need to apportion blame to someone. And it's like, well, actually sometimes projects just don't work And if we all just recognize the things that we were, the assumptions we made that haven't turned out to be true and then shifted, like, let's stop blaming one another for everything and instead just see it as a a challenge, which we've now have to come up with a a way to overcome.
0: And, you know, the opportunities as well from learning from these mistakes, like you literally there's so many benefits to actually moving forward and going, well, this didn't work because of these reasons we will not have to do this again.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think this is another thing is that often like every couple months you come up against people who are like, oh yeah, watch failures. We need to like failing is good. Failing is a really good thing. Um, (laughs) We all need to fail more so that we can learn from it. And I'm like, yes, if you're inventing the light bulb, (laughs) if your failure is that you're building toilets and kids are they're not good enough technically and kids are drowning in toilets we don't need to keep doing that like we (laughs) need to actually learn from these failures because yeah it's uh, yeah it's really important that we learn from our failures but also like we need to avoid stuffing up so badly all the time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there's money that's going into aid that could be spent on other things, rather than like, oh, well, it didn't hurt anyone. Well, this there's, this there's really this myth that if a WASH project doesn't work, well, it's just neutral. It didn't there's hurt no anyone. There's no impact. Yeah. But it does. But actually it can yeah. have really bad impacts. Yeah.
0: Because you, you're affecting the level of trust that you have with the people, with the community. So they yeah. may be less reluctant to participate in any other, like, even WASH or non-related WASH initiatives in future, because like, well, they're not going to listen to us anyway.
1: Or you've convinced a community, uh, you've convinced households to all invest in this toilet or to start a business around building toilets, and you've convinced them that this is going to be what, you know, their livelihood, and then it all falls apart because it hasn't been planned out properly or, you know, your assumptions were wrong. Well, then now people have put all their life savings into starting this sanitation business so i think we really really need to take responsibility and be really accountable which is a big part of the Nakuru accord of yes the things we do have consequences um so let's try and do them better yeah
0: i think people will tend to forget that because once once their done, it's like yeah done hands dusted i'm good next project and you don't think yeah. about what happens afterwards as well so like, not just maintenance, but the support for the communities who have to continue afterwards. Like you said, um, you know, all the taps and stuff are, in- are installed, but nobody's using them. It's like, well,
1: why? And I, I really think this is a big thing, particularly in Western culture, where we've got such of like, I'm going to separate my work from my home life. But in terms of like, yeah, it's done and dusted. I do these things at work and then I don't think about it afterwards kind of thing. And... You're so many of us have jobs, like most of us have jobs where it impacts on other people's lives. So it's, it's kind of like if you, it, this excuse of like, I, I'm going to work go into, balance. but no, well, yes, we definitely work like that. <laughs> I mean, more like if you're going to work for a company and you share none of their morals, but you're like, but you know, I need the money, uh, make a decision about what impact you want to have on the world. Because what you do in your work life actually does impact the rest of the world, even though you're like, well, between these hours of nine to five, I belong to the company. And even though I do stuff, which I think is morally dubious, you know, that's, that's just what I have to do to get a paycheck. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, I get to be a good person in my time off. Um, So it's really just that thinking about every decision that you make at work actually does impact the world. and taking that responsibility as well and yeah it's tough <laughs> and i totally it understand is. that some people like, <laughs> I, I mean when you're thinking about if you've got a family at home mm-hmm. and you're living paycheck to paycheck and this kind of thing like yeah it's very tough to make those moral choices all the time
0: and it's like the decisions you're saying that about you know poverty and the way that people the attitudes people have like people are still making those sorts of decisions based on their own circumstances. And yeah, there's a lot of compromise going on in the way that, you know, you do decide how to, how you want to do things. <laughs>
1: yeah. This is oh, my, um... Very complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and my, my general like motto for life I tell people is don't be a dick. Like just yes. be a, a nice person, make decisions that are at least the best of your knowledge, not going to negatively impact people, could have a positive impact, um, be a reliable person.
0: Yes. At the very least, just think about the impact of what you're yeah. doing.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So oh, another one of the big things that you do work on is about menstrual health and period poverty. So, you know, how how does that relate to the rest of the work that you're doing at the moment? Or is that just a, a, a different aspect of what you're doing?
1: When I started working in Nepal, um, I guess probably about 20 years ago, the water and sanitation sector started getting, I think because they started being more women engineers in the mm. field and realizing that if we were going to talk about toilets and things, actually, why weren't we talking about menstrual health? Um, not to say the menstrual health is automatically related to toilets, but <laughs> at least in our context, often that is where you do manage your period. Um, yeah. Uh, so programs started... As I, you know, when I was in Nepal and that, we started talking more about menstrual health um, and solid waste disposal and personal hygiene and how that's linked to water and sanitation as well. And you need enough water to be able to bathe and that kind of thing. So I guess my work has, I'm doing more and more stuff in menstrual health. And when I was working in the South Pacific, um, was also when I kind of realized how. Bad the situation could be in high income countries as well. Um, I heard about uh, a woman who had started an organization called Share the Dignity um, in Australia. And at the time, um, very much the focus was on making sure that um, women who are experiencing homelessness had access to menstrual health products. Yes. Um, And so I contacted her and I got involved. And so I was one of the founding board members for that organization. And that's how I got a lot more, um, knowledgeable about the fact that this is a big, big issue in high income countries as well. It was something that at the time, you know, this was six years ago, no one was talking about, um, we just kind of started talking in the media about, um, menstrual huts in Nepal and girls being banned from staying with their family when they had their period, that kind of thing. Um, and so we've seen more and more, uh. Media coverage about the fact that yes, there are a lot of issues in terms of girls not having access to menstrual materials overseas, but also in Australia and other high-income countries as well. Um, so I've gotten more involved in that side of things, and um, a big review actually that I've just submitted to a, to a journal, and we've got a, a preprint up. If anyone's interested, um, rec- what we've really recognised is something that hasn't gotten into the media so much is the fact that not having menstrual materials is is rubbish is uh, yes. can have a lot of impact on people's well-being um, but also just the fact that menstruation is still so stigmatized um, yes that women and girls and non-binary and and trans men who also menstruate um, you know have been treated a uh, treated like crap for for no reason and even though we have a much Better technically performing menstrual materials now than we did back in the day. So in terms of menstrual cups and tampons and highly absorbent pads, still this need to conceal that you have your period, this like that the most embarrassing thing in the world would be to to bleed somewhere and have someone find out that you have your period, um, actually has a huge impact on on people's lives. So the big review we've been doing is has been looking at, all of the data on experiences of menstrual of menstruation in high-income countries and how that impacts on people's lives. So um, how it impacts on the fact that when people don't have access to pads and things, but also the fact that it increases people's mental burden, it negatively impacts on people's relationships, um, yeah. participation, and participation in things like... There's Everyone likes to talk about girls not going to school because they don't have pads, but also most of the research that I've looked at girls would not going to school because they're in pain so actually what we need to be addressing is 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 that side of things as well um yes you know and and taking women seriously when they do go to the doctor and say they've got menstrual pain instead of doctors blowing them off and saying we've just got a low pain threshold which happens a (laughs) lot horrific amount um so that's part of my uh another one of my things that I'm kind of a big advocate for is we've got the work uh, that there's been more and more work coming out of low and middle income countries talking about here are the impacts of poor menstrual health on on people. Um, And then we've got said, okay well, here's the uh, review of the basis of all the evidence we have in high income countries as well. And actually what we're seeing is that they're very uh, the impacts are very similar, like having a period anywhere in the world at the moment, it is stigmatized and you it leads to to people um having poorer relationships, having a poorer lifestyle, um and we need to actually address multiple issues there, multiple angles. People need menstrual materials, but also until we reduce that stigma, we're not gonna have optimal well being around menstruation. Yeah. So yeah, that's kinda of how I came to be more involved in that side of things as well. One of the reasons I got so interested in this, and I have a another paper in review with a, a PhD student around, I was getting really annoyed about engineers saying that if you just put a sticker on a toilet that says, don't flush your tampons, that people won't flush. And being like, <laughs> people well, flush hands everything. are clean, <laughs> Yes, you can find anything in a toilet. But people are like, no, I put the sign up and therefore my hands are clean and I have no responsibility anymore. And I'm like, mm, well, we still have these issues in... So you can argue that in a lot of low and middle income countries that girls are saying like, oh, there was nowhere to put my product. So I put it down the yeah. toilet. Um, but, you know, in high income countries, we've got these fatbergs in our sewers because yes, people exactly. are flushing. I was going to bring that things. up. Yeah. People are flushing so, everything. Yes. So even when there is an, an option, there might be a nice sanitary bin in a workplace or just the bin at home, etc. Um, so the, some work we've been doing is, you know, what are the behavior, what are the different reasons that people give for disposal behaviors and saying, well, if you're an engineer, actually stop just saying, well, we technically put an incinerator there. And so it should be fine. <laughs> actually thinking about how, why people make these decisions to do different things and how that then, you know, can totally stuff up your engineering system in terms of your, your waste yes. treatment or whatever. Like, it's really important for you that somebody considers what people are thinking of when they do this. Um, so yeah, so there's your definitely end that are the are there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I'm not saying that engineers have to be social scientists. I'm saying that engineers need to respect social scientists and actually have those conversations yeah. and and bring that into designs as well. And I got yes. yeah, I got really angry a couple of years ago. When I, was involved <laughs> in a, I was involved in an international standard, and some of the men engineers were just like, no, and I was like. Which, yeah, this (laughs) this whole review and paper came out of that, that experience. So hopefully that will get published soon as well. (laughs) Try and get in front of some engineers. (laughs) But that is
0: the thing, isn't it? Like we, we go, okay, well we, we've come up with a solution.
1: Of course you're going to use it.
0: No problem. Done. And it's like, well, yeah, you've provided the solution and yeah, Yeah. that's nice. What was was the
1: actual (laughs) problem? Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's like, uh, address the actual issue.
0: Yeah, it's like the, I uh, don't know, you've probably seen it, the tire swing um, meme. I guess it's a bit mm, of a meme. Sure. Uh, they bring it up with in terms of project management. and But the, the joke is that, you know, the project manager says, okay, well, I need this thing. And it ends up being this fancy looking, you know, swing with bells and whistles and things that you don't need at all. And then you ask different people as part of the rest of the team, building the thing, what they are going to do with it. And they come up with all these weird things. Some of them don't work. Some of them are completely redundant things that are physically impossible. And the things they didn't ask the client, what do you want? And they just wanted a tree with a tire, with a tire. and a rope. Yeah. yeah. And you know, they, you know, that's all they wanted. And all these other people were come up with these solutions that just yes they met the criteria in a general way (laughs) but it wasn't actually what they wanted
1: well there's this really famous failure in uh in the wash sector called play pumps and essentially uh it was in areas where they needed to pump groundwater so that communities had access to to more drinking water and i think bathing water and stuff as well um so essentially they made it so that to pump the water the kids had to like play on this play equipment which then would pump yeah. the water up into a water tank, which they'd sold advertising space on. So there's advertising on top of the tank, but it was like, the kids didn't want to play on it. The um, <laughs> You'd have to be pumping the water for, more than 24 hours a day to actually get enough water for what people needed and actually it was a lot more physical effort to do that than if you just had a pump where the women could because it's generally the women go and actually just pump the water up thousands of these installed across southern africa oh my um, goodness yeah definitely look that one up <laughs> big one that we talked about everyone knows about that in wash in terms oh, wow. of it, well you know like what's an excellent solution to not the right not the same Not problem, even like, a problem. Like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like I don't yeah. know what philosophy is. What, solution are are like, trying what to is this? There. We don't want to play on this really This is hard thing. work. This is child labour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's been a lot of journal articles written about it.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, all the more reason for needing to talk about wash failures.
1: <laughs> yes. And because it's a kind of thing that people are tagging me on, on Facebook on a daily basis. Like people not in the WhatsApp, they like, look at this amazing idea. And they're like, oh God, we just need to think these things through.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Seems like a good idea at the time. I'm sure just yeah. wasn't screened.
1: Some <laughs> amazing, yeah. Some amazing technical stuff where I'm like, yeah, I could totally get on board from an engineering perspective, but did anyone actually ask if someone needed that?
0: Like, <laughs> so. Yeah, I definitely, I can see much more interesting than drinking water. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I can definitely see how it's just so, you know, there's just so many different parts of it that are so important. And, you know, when you look at it from a technical engineering or administrative perspective, it's like, yeah, the solutions are so obvious. Mm. And that's only, it only works if you take that in isolation of everything else, in which case you're not solving anything. You're not addressing (laughs) any of the issues that are actually um, needing to be addressed.
1: Yeah. And don't we all want to feel like what we're doing for work is actually being useful? Like you don't want to be like, well, I got paid for my eight hours. Turns out it was a complete waste of time. Like I don't like doing that. But I don't I like did... writing grants that don't get funded. And I feel like I've wasted my time. Like...
0: Yes. And you know, the value isn't just in creating the end product, it's actually creating an end product that's valuable to someone else. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Okay. So, uh, yeah time-wise, let's move on to a couple of those other little things I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. that are completely unrelated, but could be related. <laughs> so what hobby or interest do you have that's most unrelated to your field of work?
1: Thinking about this, I think uh, like treasure hunting, geocaching. <gasps> do you know what geocaching oh, is? Yes, geocaching. Yeah. So my yes. husband and I really like doing things like uh, geocaching For for anyone who doesn't know. Essentially, it's like members of the public leave little um, capsules and things around places all around the world. And you've got to like solve clues to find them. And sometimes you find them and they're like in the craziest places. And often people will put them in a place of like, uh, where there's an amazing view or there's a really cool story that I think you should hear. Um, nice. So yeah, that kind of thing. And then we'll do like treasure trails and scavenger hunts and and all those different ones, which come up in in other places. So yeah. And if we can take our dog, that's even better. (laughs)
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, like geocaching was huge years ago. I like it. I can't imagine it ever dying out, to be honest, just because the <laughs> adventure of being able to just find stuff and solve clues to, you know, look yeah. for all these other little bits of treasure. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, we do a lot of escape rooms as well, but you have to budget for those because they're pretty pretty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, those are a bit different.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Are there a lot of geocaches in Perth? Um, there are, actually. We haven't done as much um, since we've been back, we did a lot when we were living in the UK, um, particularly because yeah. we were traveling a lot. Um, but I have yeah, looked at the maps and there's there's definitely been more and more in, in WA in, in the last few years since we started. Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: That is awesome. Very, very cool. Yeah. yeah. I did want to do that at some point. Didn't get around to it. Might have to give it a go. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, there's also ones like a lot of people do it with their kids and you can choose like the... Difficulty level, so you can yes. choose ones which are a bit easier for kids to find and that sort of thing. And often oh, the kid, the, those sorts of ones, you know, people will put stickers or figurines and things in there that kids can find.
0: Ah, so. oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think my child would like that. Yeah. <laughs> she likes presents. <laughs> but yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, oh yeah, I wanted to ask you, what started you on the pantomime thing? Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just, so I lived at college uh, and in my first year of uni there were um, one of the guys who lived at our college was from Bristol Uni and one of the girls at the next co- the college next door was from Bristol Uni and they decided let's do a pantomime because uh, it's yeah. such a big thing in the UK and um, we love it. Um, so we did one between the two colleges and it was amazing nice. fun and I, you know, I always liked doing like acting but not serious acting just having yeah. fun. Um, and so then after we did that first show, it was like, well, maybe we should actually make this into a proper, uh, university society. So then the next year, um, it became like part of the UWA guild. And what's really cool is that my husband and I just moved into our, um, first house that we own and we've, we've lived in a lot of different places in the last few years, so we had a lot of stuff in storage and my parents were like, here's all your junk from your (laughs) undergrad years and things, and I found like All the show posters from and like banners and things, and so I contacted the current pantomime society and said. You guys got any interest in these? And they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're going to have an 18th birthday party. The Panto Society is 18 years Aww. old now. Um, that we'd love to have all that as like decorations and things." Um, so that's I took cool. them in a couple of days ago, and they're like, "When are these from?" I'm like, "2003 uh, onwards." They're like, oh, "That's so ancient." I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> oh god, that's, so old. that's harsh." Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just something that was really fun. I was doing it for fun at the time, and yeah. I realized that. um, I actually got a lot out of it in terms of the skill of just being able to get up on stage and just not care what people think and just yes have fun. I think it's really, it has worked really well in my favor.
0: Yeah. Like it's, it's a good skill to have and you know, kind of makes you more humble. <laughs>
1: yeah, and, and because I'm a lecturer too, like, so yeah. it really helps that with my students, I mean, it helps with me not being so nervous when I'm talking to students, but also makes like, more approachable um and because the things i talk about are can be pretty funny sometimes (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: yeah that's cool and it's a good way of being able to bring i guess lightness to whatever it is that you need to address especially because a lot of these Mm. are pretty serious issues
1: yeah yeah some of the stuff i've seen is pretty pretty horrific um yeah yeah and at at the moment uh, because a lot of the communities i've worked with you know end up in the time while I'm working with them will be hit by cyclones or flooding or one of the communities I'm meant meant to be working with at the moment in Cox's Bazaar. So the refugee camp in Bangladesh um, was the one that last week there was a huge fire and a heap of people died and have been displaced again. So I think there's just so much crap in the world (laughs) that sometimes it's nice to have a lighter way of engaging with people on the, on the issues and, kind of getting people in there
0: yeah and it makes it more accessible as well because as you said a lot of these issues are taboo so being able to communicate or present that in a way that you know is not insensitive but at least makes it I guess more digestible for certain people yeah that's cool awesome okay and which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you
1: I was having a think about this and I couldn't really think of like a traditional kids book but I was, when I was about eight, my mum gave me, I I think actually it might've been Santa. Um, (laughs) Someone gave me this picture book and I guess it was like a coffee table book called uh, Coral Reefs, Nature's Richest Realm. And it's just beautiful, beautiful photos from coral reefs around the world. I think particularly from Australia, this one, and it was just something that I would just flick through constantly all the time. Something that I've again yeah. come across now that I'm, um, my parents are trying to unload everything from my childhood to our um, <laughs> And, and yeah, so very much along that environmental side of things. Yeah. Um,
0: that's definitely a thing. Like a lot yeah. of people mentioning books that seem to tie into what their adult interest tends to be. So yeah, yeah,
1: that's very cool. But I mean, I also liked Goosebumps books and, <laughs> to clubs and I'm just not sure how influential they were on me. Although Teen Power Inc, they were mystery solvers. So, you know, maybe that's where yeah. the geocaching from.
0: <laughs> Could yeah. be. Yeah. But yeah, all of those books, very like when you're growing up, there are a lot of things that influence you in different ways. And yeah, um one of my other guests was saying, you know, I wanted to talk about you know, I, I mentioned this other book, but what I really wanted to say was I really like Babysitter's Club. It's <laughs> like, Yeah, you can totally say that. That is fine because, you know, these are the stories that did have an impact on us. These are the oh yeah part of I, I, I
1: mean, even now up. I'm like, you know what? One of my favorite shows in the last decade? Gossip Girl. Absolutely <laughs> trash like just it is. no, it doesn't touch on any issues of any importance to my life or anything that I do for work. But oh, Chuck Bass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, um, related, unrelated. Have you watched Bridgerton? <laughs>
1: uh, I have watched some of it, but at the moment we don't have internet in our house because we just <sighs> moved in. So I've seen it, like the first three or four episodes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I remember <laughs> when I first saw the trailer for that. Um, I saw it being promoted as it's a cross between Jane Austen and Gossip Girl. It's like, yeah, sold. It really <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> ah, guilty pleasures. <laughs> okay. And finally, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do and what advice should they ignore?
1: I think talk to lots of people. Uh, as I've said before, kind of like live by your own morals. Um, make sure that what you want to do is something that you – are happy with being part of the world, right? Like that that your contribution is at least not doing harm. Um, (laughs) I think there's a lot, um, if you are interested in the international development side of things, something I would go ahead and go away and have a read of is called the sidekick manifesto. And it's a lot about how, like I, I mentioned, I will never know what it's like to actually live in, a slum settlement of, of Nairobi in Kenya. Um, there are certain things that I can do in my life which can contribute to maybe helping life be a little bit better in different parts of the world, but I'm only ever going to be a sidekick to the people who actually need to, um, who actually will address their own problems and their own priorities um, in terms of, of, you know, improving people's well being and stuff. Yeah. So that's a big thing, I think, is that, We're all very idealistic, particularly when we are undergrads and we think we've got a degree that, you know, we can help the world. Um, But actually... very eyed (laughs) bushy-tailed. Yeah. And I don't want to be a cynic because there's definitely ways that you can contribute positively to the world. But knowing that, you know, the white saviour thing is not real. I don't know if it ever actually worked. And now, you know, we're very (laughs) aware that it's not it's not appropriate and it doesn't work anyway yes um but also thinking about if if what you're really interested in is that doing something positive and community development and stuff it doesn't have to be overseas and it doesn't have to be something you do as your career Um, getting involved at the local level um looking at issues like homelessness in your own um, state um menstrual health for example we know is, is an issue in high-income places like Australia as well, um, so even if it's something that it, it, the stuff that I do really interests you, there are ways that you can get involved without it having to be the the be all and the end all that you you know leave your career in um, <laughs> or, or it becomes your entire career. Like there are positive changes that you can make um, just in your own life as well. Yeah,
0: brilliant. Yeah, you can. Yeah, always ways that we can contribute.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And cause you know, people always say, like, oh my God, what you do is amazing. You're like, it's just another little thing. Like we can all do things that are important.
0: But it's the, it's adding up of the lots of little things and that's, yeah. you know, yeah, that's where the important part is. Very cool. Good advice. <laughs> <laughs> and don't be a dick. <laughs> and don't be a dick. Yes. Big one, big one right there. <laughs> So if people want to know more about what you do uh, or reach out, where can they do that?
1: Um, if you're interested in all the failure stuff, um, the best thing to do is follow us on Twitter, which is at FSM underscore fail. And we can put that in the show notes, I think. Yep. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Danny underscore Barrington. And that's probably the best way of, of seeing what I'm up to and also getting in touch and pretty, pretty on top of that. Um, and I share a lot of links about all the things that I'm interested in all the time. So yes. Brilliant. Filter, okay, filter cool. out what you're actually interested in.
0: <laughs> Definitely. But amongst yeah, amongst the ranting. Ah, oh, no, the ranting's good too. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Danny, for speaking with me today. It's been amazing learning more about you and what you do and all of these amazing things to do with the wash sector and. I guess the impact of everything on everyone.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> yes. Be accountable for everything you do because it impacts on everyone else. So.
0: Yeah. And that's with everything, everywhere.
1: All right. okay, well, thank, thank, you thank you again. You. It's been yeah. such
0: a wonderful conversation
1: and I hope you have an
0: amazing day. Thank you. You too. There's so much to consider with water and sanitation systems and infrastructure and many factors involved to ensure that these systems work and continue to serve as a community in effective and useful ways. It's also been fascinating to learn about the similarly complex issues around period poverty globally and in various socioeconomic segments. To learn more about Danny and what we discuss on this show or to connect with us please visit the STEAM Powered website at steampoweredshow.com you can also reach out to Danny on Twitter at Danny underscore Barrington and learn more about wash failures at FSM underscore fail. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.